You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. French luxury brand Hermes International is claiming there's not enough pampered cows in the world to provide the quality leather they need for their handbags. Clearly, we have different ideas of what being pampered means, Hermes, because mine doesn't include being turned into a fucking handbag. Welcome back to another episode of VSP. This is lucky number seven, or it is to people who believe in that kind of thing. There are seven days in the week, seven brides for seven brothers. We all get the seven-year itch. Okay, maybe seven isn't so lucky. That was written by Jennifer McCullough. Welcome back to VSP with Steve Patterson. I, once again, am Steve Patterson. This week, our featured guest is no other than Joel Plaskett. We chatted about his favorite buildings in the Maritimes, working with his dad and touring with the late great Gord Downey. We also chatted about other things, which I hope you'll hear soon on our Patreon pages, Long Listens. VSP writer Diana Francis will deliver this week's audio letter about the crackdown on Airbnbs in BC. Plus, we'll get a quick word from our chief technologist, John Steinberg, and our new urban beekeeper, Jennifer McAuliffe. But first, here's a few stories from around the world that we think should be made fun of. In news that has stunned music fans, Jay-Z and Beyonce dropped a surprise album this week. The only clue this was going to happen, they're musicians. It's what they do. The Supreme Court of Canada has denied accreditation for Trinity Western University's new law school, claiming that their Christian community covenant is discriminatory towards LGBT students. Wow, when your law school loses their court case to be a law school, it probably wasn't going to be a very good law school. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un reportedly brought his own toilet to the U.S.-North Korea summit in Singapore. Donald Trump tried to as well, but how are you going to get a mattress on a plane? A survey of U.S. teens show that they're drinking far less milk than they were 25 years ago. When asked why, the teens said they were too busy hiding under their desks. 73 cases of salmonella poisoning have recently been traced to Kellogg's cereal. The really sad thing is this could have been just 36 and a half cases of salmonella, but Kellogg's insists on putting two scoops of salmonella in every package of Kellogg's Raisin Bran. It's my favorite joke to deliver. And finally, an Australian grandfather is suing Google for defamation over search results linking him to Australia's criminal underworld, which is pretty impressive because my grandfather is still learning how to use Google. Well, it seems like technology is advancing at a breakneck speed these days. Self-driving cars, augmented reality, disc mans, just to name a few. Here to break it all down is VSP's chief technologist in a new segment that we're calling Tech Minute with John Steinberg. It's John Steinberg. John, what's the latest news out of Silicon Valley? Everybody's talking about owls. Ah, owls. Interesting. It's like an acronym, I guess. Uh, online web server logistics. They're like birds, that. Steve. Yeah, I know what owls are, John. Anyhow... What's going on in Silicon Valley is that there's a community of burrowing owls, but their numbers are rapidly declining. Okay, so how does Silicon Valley fix this? Uh, I guess robots or a computer program? Oh, they're not fixing it. It's actually their doing. 
They're the ones unleashing the cats. Cats? Isn't this segment called Tech Minute? Yeah, I'm trying to keep it brief. I didn't think I'd have to explain what owls are. Anyhow, the owls, they're being eaten by feral cats, because the Google campus has a cat rescue program, and those cats are eating the owls. Uh, okay, that, well, that's awful. Is there anything that can be done to save the owls? There is, Steve. And like most things, it's up to me to fix it. I'm starting a program called Yahoo Dog Rescue. We're going to fill all the old abandoned Yahoo offices with rescue dogs, and not the kind of dogs you see hugging cats in YouTube videos. I'm talking about real dogs for a real cat problem. Okay, John, I see where you're going with this, but isn't this dangerous for the people? Oh, for sure. All the people need to get out of there right away. It's going to be chaos. Cats eating owls, dogs eating cats, owls eating dogs. But there is some good news. Okay, uh, what is it? Waterloo, Ontario offers many great resources for tech companies. Plus, it's not awash with mangy animals violently fighting to the death. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. As always, John Steinberg's Tech Minute is brought to you by the City of Waterloo. Okay, I did not know you brought your own sponsor for this segment that we're doing for the first time, but thanks, John. And don't forget to tune in next week for another Tech Minute with John Steinberg. No, no we're, we're not doing this again. And now a quick word from our urban beekeeper, Jennifer McAuliffe. Hi, Jen. Hi, Steve. I didn't know that you were an urban beekeeper. Oh, yeah, I love bees. And I thought in the spirit of IHOP, changing its name to IHOB, VSP should change its name to VSB. <laughs> okay, you're so excited about this. Why? Oh, to highlight the dwindling bee population. You know, according to New Scientist magazine, bees are the first insects shown to understand the concept of zero. Yes, so bees know nothing. I've been telling people this for years. Oh, on the contrary, Steve. Bees are incredibly intelligent. Oh. They rely on a waggle dance to communicate food sources to each other. A waggle? Like an interpretive dance? Exactly. Their teamwork is based on a hive-wide game of charades. And just a few weeks ago, they attacked players in a soccer game in Ecuador, forcing the teams to lie down and submit to their bee demands. Okay, I'd love to believe that that's true, but uh, soccer players, they kind of just lie down anyway. Did the bees actually touch them? or No, they just hovered above them. Yeah. And not only right. that, but bees have also been trained by Croatian scientists to sniff out landmines in the former Yugoslavia. I had no idea. I didn't even know bees had noses. Well, the ones that don't find the landmines still do. Uh, <laughs> no, you didn't. I did. But seriously, it's devastating that we're losing all the pollination of bees. Such a sentient and intelligent creature. And so much of the food supply is dependent on the bees. If we didn't have them, we'd be without any coffee, without chocolate. Without any honey. Sorry, without any chocolate. And don't call me that. No, uh, like honey. We wouldn't have honey without bees, obviously. Oh, <laughs> yeah. sorry, I get it. But still never call me honey. This podcast is a workplace. Yeah, but you're wearing a bee costume, Jen. I want it to be a TV show. So do I. Thank you to our urban beekeeper, Jennifer McAuliffe. It was a pleasure to be here. Okay, please leave now. You want me to buzz off? Yes, I do. That stings. Oh, my goodness. Alex, can we get out of this segment? VSB! No, not you. Oh, my God. Alex, the real music sting, please. And now, Diana Francis reads a letter she wrote, but didn't know where to send. Dear Vancouver Airbnb hosts, 
This must be a difficult time for you. Vancouver has implemented new short-term rental rules, and not only do you now have to pay for a business license, but you can only rent out your place if it's your principal residence, and any secondary suites have to go back into the rental market. Ugh, how archaic. What is this, 2008? I'd be mad too. I mean, who wants long-term tenants in your basement? Certainly not the thousands of people in Vancouver who can barely even afford to live in a basement suite. Ew, below-ground dwellers. I mean, yay, if they're paying 175 a night and speak German so they can't complain about the broken coffee maker, but ew, if they're a single parent trying to only spend a third of their monthly income on rent. I get your frustration, Vancouver Airbnb hosts, because I'm frustrated too. I currently live in Toronto, but I was born and raised in Vancouver, and I would really like to move home. But I can't, because the vacancy rate is under 1%, thanks in part to the number of suites being used for Airbnb. And here's the rub. Though I live in Toronto, I work on a TV show in Vancouver, so whenever they need me out west, I have to rent an Airbnb, which is now impossible to do. And before you think, hey, she works in TV, she can afford to buy a place, let me answer that with, it's a Canadian TV show, housing prices are inflated, and I'm really bad with money. And sure, Vancouver has already converted over 400 illegal Airbnb suites into long-term rentals and is investigating another 1,500, but it doesn't matter. You think just because a few more laneway houses open up that the rental prices are gonna drop from holy fuck to a more reasonable sweet baby Jesus. So in conclusion, if you're a Vancouver Airbnb host, don't complain about the new rules. Just be happy you actually have housing and it's not in Toronto. And Toronto, oh, don't worry, these rules are coming for you too, but I just kind of don't really care about that. Sincerely, Diana Francis. Well, this week was a treat for me. I met up with Joel Plaskett in his studio in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. You may know him as a multiple Juno award-winning songwriter. He spent time on the Polaris Music Prize shortlist. He has sold out clubs and concert halls from one side of the country to the other and beyond. He's a Canadian rock musician and songwriter. He was a member of Halifax alternative rock band Thrush Hermit in the 90s and The Emergency after that. And I had gotten him just after an extended trip to Ireland, so... We might be a little bit looser than usual in this interview. Please enjoy as much as I did talking with Joel Plaskett. Thank you. It's great to be here in my studio. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for welcoming me in. This is our first satellite taping, and you've already offered me a, a local beverage. Yeah, all the way from, uh, well, we're in New Scotland, I guess. We're in New Scotland. This is, this is Scottish whiskey. Yes. Yeah. It's the yeah. famous maritime hospitality coming true already. That's it. Your first band name, never mind Thrush Hermit, which we all know. Yeah. Uh, what was it? Nabisco Fonzie. Nabisco Fonzie. Yeah, yeah. Two lawsuits pending. That's why we had to change it. <laughs> Um, was it really from the famous uh, Crackers and the famous Fonz? Or yeah, I, I can't remember. I would assume maybe Rob Benvy came up with that, but I'm not sure. It was Ian, Rob, and I. We went on to be in Thrushroom yes. together. Uh, essentially, Nabisco Fonzie lasted for two cassettes that we recorded live into a tape machine in Rob's garage in grade eight. Rob would play drums while I would play guitar, and Ian would just sing or... Rob and I would both play guitar and Ian would just sing or Ian would play drums. But it was great. Nabisco Fonzie was a good name. We never should have changed our well, name. It no, was better than Thrushermit. Some refer to you also as the unofficial mayor of Halifax. How is that possible, Joel? Because Dartmouth and Halifax, from what I understand, and those listening in the rest of Canada might not know this, fierce rivals. 
Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I've gotten associated with this place and I certainly will fly the Dartmouth flag. I love the community here and I've been living in Dartmouth only since 2002. So that's 16 years. But nonetheless, I'm not from Dartmouth. I guess after we moved here, Hurricane Juan came along and ripped the shingles off the house about a year later. And we were doing some work on the house, basically. And that was right around the time Truthfully Truthfully came out. And I did a lot of press. And so it was like at home in Dartmouth. But I'm from Lunenburg as Lunenburg, a kid. Nova Scotia. Uh, born in Berwick, down in the valley. Uh, always Nova Scotia, though, right? But always Nova Scotia. I've yeah. never lived anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, the great thing I love about Lunenburg, having lived in Halifax for many years and watching it change and a lot of what I love get torn down. Right. A lot of the buildings in Halifax that I, I have the biggest attachment to from when I was younger here in my 20s are now gone or vacant. Lunenburg, however, I can walk through and go, man, that house is the Still same there. color. Hey, played in that house because they're protected because it's a heritage site. So okay. it's like I've had my f childhood frozen in time, which is great. I really do wish all of Canada could experience it firsthand, but you were very, very active in trying to maintain the Kyber Center. The Kyber building is, is 1588 Barrington Street, and it became known as the Kyber building because there was a restaurant in there. This is before my time. In the late 80s, maybe early 90s, there was an Afghan family that had a place called the Kyber Cafe. And then artists moved into the building and started the Kyber Center for the Arts okay. in there or something. And that's where I'd recorded a record called Down at the Kyber. It was like there was a recording studio on the top level. It's where I met my wife as well on the right. French and Hale video shoot um, in 1994, oh Thrush Hermit's first video. She came out to do the makeup. That structure, it's, it's the old Church of England Institute. You know, it's a Gothic piece of architecture on Barrington Street. It's one of the only buildings that looks that way in Halifax. It is one of a kind in Halifax. It's vacant right now, but the city has um, agreed to give it to a society that I was involved with for a while. And uh, there's going the to least. preserve the building and to try and get it back to being an art center. Great. Now, the challenge is uh, it's going to require some massive fundraising because yeah. it needs a lot of renovation. It needs to be accessible. You've traveled so much across Canada, certainly, and around the world. What can people take from this wherever they are to kind of help preserve you know, the original flavor of their towns. Not everyone has as much history as, as a, a Halifax or, or a well, Dutchman. weird. I mean, I just came back from Ireland. And when right. you're in Ireland, what Halifax's version of old is versus right. what I witnessed over there, uh, you know, the stone walls were older than <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Halifax, maybe, you know. So it's all, it's all relative, I suppose. But Halifax does have some beautiful old places. They do. And my take on it is, I think that places have a spirit and when things happen in spaces, that collective energy builds. And when you walk into a place that has that patina, you know, and that feeling of things have been happening in this place for a long time, that's inspiring. And it also makes you feel like you're part of something that goes back further than yourself. I don't have an issue so much with development. It's more like what that development looks like right. and feels like and how it works with what's there and what you could preserve about what's old. You want the city to be welcoming. You want more people to come here. You want it to build. You want people to immigrate here and, yeah. and, 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 and join the city. So it's not like you want to just have the city be for the people who've lived here all the time. But I will say that my own personal attachment to places, my own attachment to downtown Halifax has changed significantly because probably the four most significant buildings, the only one that's still standing is the Kyber and it has a chance of being saved. Right. Dartmouth has, isn't, hasn't built at that same pace. And so I'm kind of like hanging my hat here and sort of building my own attachment to the places here. And it'll change eventually too, but uh, you know. 
speaking about you do like to uh, you like things that are older than yourself. Your dad, he's older than you. Yes? He is older than me. Yeah, by uh, thirty years. Are you still touring together on the Solidarity Tour? Uh, is that we, no, now? like we're kind of wrapped on that, but we have some shows this summer. Uh, there's a few, so yeah, we still got some gigs in front of us. I mean, now that we've made that record, and we were doing shows even before that record, I think it'll just continue. I saw you guys in Halifax years and years ago. You and your dad performing at, a, at one of the churches. Oh, you saw that show at yeah. St. Matthew's. Was, but do you, yeah. what, do you, what do you think of performing? To me, seeing a Nova Scotia musician in Nova Scotia is a, a magic, one-of-a-kind experience. I don't know, what, maybe it's what you're talking about, the venue having something to do with it, but that show in particular in that church, you and your dad performing together, that was, uh, man, I wish I could uh, recreate that for all of you right now, but well, I cannot. I love hearing that. I can feel that connect with, with the audience here. And, uh, and, you know, I went to Ireland last year to see a show, seeing like... Andy Irvine sings Streets of Derry in Derry. In Derry. Was awesome. You know, it was, yeah. it, and it, it lifted. I mean, I was tearing up watching it. It was so great. And we've gone so far to see it. When I'm playing here, really, the I'm singing about stuff that's a couple of blocks away. My dad thinks he deserves the royalty for half of my comedy show right, because right. he thinks that I've just inherited his sense of humor right. and then I don't get, <laughs> I can't imagine touring with him because he would just correct everything that I've written a joke about. That didn't actually right. happen and it would not be the same chemistry as you guys. One of the things I love about touring with dad is I get a break from the microphone. I can watch him sing a song. I can look at the audience and I can soak in the gig in a way that I can't when I'm fronting it because I'm firing on all cylinders and I'm, and I'm getting into the songs. And so I'm, I rarely get to be like just the guitar player and that's fun. You know. And do you notice a change in the crowds when you're touring with your dad as opposed to your solo tours? And yeah, and I mean, the emergency shows are rock and roll shows, yeah. but they're, they, we've moved that into theaters here and there, and we still do some big outdoor stuff, get a lot of the sort of summertime stuff with the band. Shows with my dad or yeah, I mean, what I'm finding is, to be honest, and I hate talking about, like, the, the word demographic grosses me out because yeah, it means me like you've tried to figure your audience out. <laughs> yeah. or you you've know, tried to make you marketed to them. Stats. But I have noticed that I see six-year-olds in the audience and I see 65 or 70-year-olds in the audience and everybody in between. Lots of folks my age, you know. And that's predominantly probably where my audience is sort of like a few years younger than me, a few years older than me. I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is, I'm making an assumption of the music business. I can only come at it from comedy, but if you go and tour and do the same comedy show all the time, people aren't going to keep coming out to it because yeah. they need that surprise in comedy. And I feel like fans of musicians such as yourself that try different projects, even within the same album, different styles. I think that people appreciate that because they're hearing something truly new every time, as opposed to musicians that always do the exact same kind of music, even right. though it's not the same song. So you must feel that you're a prolific writer. You you just constantly I, are. I'm a prolific things. writer, and I because my songs are tend to be personal. I've usually got like even as an intro to a number of songs, I probably have three or four stories I could tell before that song <laughs> because it's changed where it how what it was written about something that happened when I sang this. All of a sudden, the songs grow with stories attached to them. So I can play the same song, but I can tell a different story about it. I can inform it differently. I don't know how many records deep now, you know, like I guess if you count like the triple album I made, there's probably nine or 10 records of material to draw on. And so I can kind of change the setup and pull songs from various corners. But yeah, I'm really mindful of putting on a different show every time. You, do, you, know, you don't often get to just look your hero in the eye about something that they did. My favorite lyric of any song in the world, any song in the world, not just any one of your songs, is picture one hand clapping, 
then picture half that, that sound. sound. All right. That is the stand-up comedy life in a nutshell that you captured through <laughs> Kelowna in uh, I Love This Town. I played a show in Kelowna last year. Said pick it up, Joel. We're dying in here. Picture one hand clapping, then picture half that sound. There's a reason that I hate that town. You, you did that lyric, but you made the show about what had happened in the room that night. And I loved that so much because as a comedian, you want to be there in the moment. And as a musician, you don't always see that. People don't have enough fun, I don't think, with their own material after well, a while. Well, I get bored doing the same thing over and over again. And it, frankly, I'm not that good at it. Like a song like Love This Town, it started as like voice memos into a dictaphone while I was driving down <laughs> to uh, Arizona to record it. And I was just singing it a cappella, and it turned into a tune. It's just like a travel log in these memories and that line, I don't know where it came from, you know, it just was like, picture one hand clapping and it's like, what's worse than that? You know, what? because that's not what happened in Cologne. It was like a guy who came up to me after the show and said, hey man, were you in the band? I was like, yeah, yeah, I was, because you fucking sucked. <laughs> <laughs> and I and he was so big and muscular, I couldn't say anything other than right. go, thank you, sir, or whatever, <laughs> like we're loading our gear up. I mean, how do you get somebody back other than uh, diss their town? That diss sells their millions town, of copies. Know? That was um, beautiful. And so uh, I like winging it. I've always loved being around my friends and laughing about something and taking something further and seeing how far around the corner you can get on a joke. That's why I like making, we make up songs on the spot and they make it onto records sometimes. And because then it's like a document, you move on. There's songs I've never played live ever. I just put them on tape and they're done. Can we talk about Gord Downey a little bit? Sure. You wrote a special song for Gord. Yeah, it was sort of a poem then turned into a song. But it was was very Gord-esque. And we're talking about this, the free spirit and just going with what you're feeling on stage. And I pay tribute to him through, I wrote, rewrote the Canadian National Anthem because people got pissed off that they changed one word from right. All Thy Sons to and All of Us. Right, right. And I decided to rewrite the whole thing and give a shout out to Gordy uh, at the end of it. And every time I do mention him, you know, I see the love that the Canadians had for him. I feel that there's a similar love for you, by the way. You can't fake that. When people love you all across this country, you've really hit a, a chord. What, 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 what did Gord mean to you? I know you guys toured with them. You know, we got a call from him in 2004 and he said, hey, it's Gord Down." You know, I don't know. Maybe my, I think maybe Tom, my agent, gave him the number. Said, hey, Joel, this is Gord Downey. We want, I really like your record, basically. Do you guys want to open our Canada Day show at the Molson Amphitheater? Jeez. And I was like, absolutely not. Don't call me again. <laughs> no, and so. Uh, I would have thought it was a prank call. We, so we opened that show. And I think we did a good job. I mean, you know, the emergency is like three piece, you know, much of the time. And we were like firing on all cylinders and very excited. And we went out there and we swung as hard as we could in front of the Hips audience. And, and, you know, we'd heard stories about bands kind of not getting eaten alive, but, you know, Hip fans were pretty like, rabid. they wanted the Hip. But we we held our own and had a great show. Uh, A number of months later, we got the call that we got the invite for the national tour. And so we went across the country with the hip and all the hockey arenas from Vancouver across. We were following them in their tour bus. We had the Suburban. They were hauling our gear for us. So we had a Suburban. There was the three of us and our friend Paul Babiak who traveled with us. 
we had to keep up with them, right? Because they were doing all night drives. So we would like leave a gig and have to drive all night to make it to the next one. But we, we did this tour with them and it just opened up my audience. Like I put me in front of so many people, you know what I mean? And built, built the audience. And after that, I went from, you know, doing horseshoes before that and the opera house. And then all of a sudden it was like the Phoenix. And it's probably what set me up for Massey eventually, you know, was that audience Gord on that tour would watch our shows. All the guys would, they were great to us. And Gord was quiet, but then you'd get in conversations with him about music or whatever. I think I was just inspired to, I was like, here's a guy who has written about the peculiarities of Canada and the things that he thinks about in his own mind, whatever writers he's read, whatever he's thinking about. And I, and, and I followed my nose the same. I know where my references come from. I know and so when I wrote that song for Gord, it was sort of a poem initially. Gord seemed to embody in the way he wrote. And so I really just wanted to write as an honor to like, to what sort of creative spirit he was. Cause he was pretty fearless in the way he uh, went about making music. And he used his time. This is probably a good time to segue to this because one thing we do on VSP that we like to do, every guest has, has a cause that they want to fight for. Certainly Gord had, many of them, and used all his time, all his time to bring Canadians together, and especially, of course, in his last year. Amazing. Bringing, yep. bringing attention to Indigenous issues. What's the, what's the charity that we can uh, make a donation to and we can ask our listeners to donate to, Joel? Well, today I was at home and the phone rang. The woman on the other end was like, hey, and then went immediately into a spiel for the Liver Foundation. And I said, oh, I can't, I didn't, I wasn't in the, I couldn't donate today. <laughs> And I made it a very brief phone call and I shut it down and I felt kind of guilty because I thought I should give some money to the Canadian Liver Foundation. I just don't want to today. Not don't want to today. I just didn't want to do it on the phone at that time. That's a way to put it. So why don't we donate to the Canadian Liver Foundation? How does that sound? That's a fine foundation. You know, if they saw my name on that list and they said, oh, Joel Plask. Oh, yeah. Because I think I said like, uh, we don't, we can't do that right now. So like if it's like, oh yeah, that's Joel Plask prick, you know? Anyway, (laughs) now, now let's see if we can get some donations happening for the Canadian Liver Foundation. Absolutely. I'm asking all listeners to (laughs) go make a donation. We will list. It's a worthy call. Absolutely. I think it's a, it's absolutely an important, uh, important cause. So let's, let's make that happen. Thank you so much, Joel Plaskett, for everything that you do and for uh, sharing this time and have a great gig at Massey Hall this week. Thanks, Steve. And that's it, everybody. Our seventh episode of VSP is in the podcast books. Thanks again to our guest, Joel Plaskett. And don't forget to hear the long listen of that interview and all the interviews we've done. Visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash VSPpod. Don't forget to support the life-saving work of Joel's charity of choice and donate to the Canadian Liver Foundation. And be sure to listen to our eighth episode next week when we'll be talking to Pride Ambassador, comedian, and truth yeller, Elvira Kurt, about the Pride movement and why it's more important now than ever. Follow us at VSP Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and check us out on NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Until next week, if I make it back from Yellowknife, I'm Steve Patterson. 
VSP is a Funny Patty Inc. and Never Sleeps Network production. Produced by me, Alex Ross, and associate producer Jennifer McAuliffe. Written by Steve Patterson, with Diana Francis, John Steinberg, and Jennifer McAuliffe. Edited by Joseph Ianni. For more information about VSP and other great Canadian podcasts, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. And please follow our socials at VSP Pod and Never Sleeps Net. See you next Wednesday. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. 